everybody and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every single week. With me today, I have Jessica and Holly from the Somics team and a very special guest, Dr. Hugh Harvey. Hugh, welcome. How are you doing? Thanks, James. Doing well. Excellent. Glad to be here, Hugh. Sorry, do you want a bigger, more enthusiastic welcome? Please, yeah. And we're going to keep all this in, by the way. So, yeah, please. <laughs> be excited to be here. Like, looking forward to talking about your own paper. I mean, there's loads that you can say, mate. <laughs> I am very excited to be here. I'm just overwhelmed by this amazing studio setup that you guys have provided for this, this chat. <laughs> I was going to say, Hugh, it's not like you to be short of words. Come on. <laughs> I'm saving it up for later. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. Ah, <laughs> oh, excellent. Hugh, bit of background in case uh, in case people aren't on Twitter and don't know who you are. Okay, so yeah, I, I used to be um, a doctor. I was a consultant radiologist for a brief period of time. I went out to work in industry. I've worked at two health tech startups, and I now run a consultancy called Hygiene Health, which helps tech startups get medical devices to market through regulatory, health economics, clinical evidence, intellectual property, and go-to-market strategy. And I do a bit of work with many of the startups that get mentioned on your podcast. So I'm always listening out to see what you're saying about them. Um, so it's a very exciting space. We're seeing massive growth and uh, looking forward to dissecting some of the others that have popped onto market in the recent weeks with mm. you guys. Yeah, it is going to be an interesting one with the stories that have been picked. And you've asked for another one mysteriously and said nothing about it as well. So we're going to cover that one towards the end. But anyway, let's get into the stories. So our first story today, uh, a paper written by or authored, third author named on here, Hugh Harvey. Can Apple and Google continue as health app gatekeepers as well as distributors and developers? And this is in... NPJ Digital Medicine. This is a that's a that's a lot of impact factor there, Hugh. So uh, congratulations on the paper and the publication. Uh, tell us though, what does this mean? What is going on? This is our attempt at raising awareness of the regulatory laws that, that cover the EU, not the UK post Brexit, not America or the FDA, just the EU. We're specifically referencing health apps and a subset of health apps that are actually medical devices. So not many people are aware that when you go on an app store, either the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store, and you search in their health or fitness or well-being categories, yes, there are thousands and thousands of apps that people can download. Some of those are what are known as medical devices, specifically software as a medical device. And there is no current indication when you go on these app stores which of those devices are medical devices or not, which of those apps have actually got the CE mark, which is the legal accreditation that is required to be on market. There's really no information. Now, Europe recently updated, I say recent, it's two years now, updated their, their medical device regulations. And in that, they included clauses on the responsibilities of what are known as two stakeholders in the whole ecosystem. One is distributors. So these are people who or companies or platforms that distribute apps. So clearly, the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store are app distributors. Under these laws, and they are laws, this is not like up for argument or debate, these are in law, these two companies are now distributors of software as a medical device, apps through their app stores. 
So they have compliance systems, which we can talk about in a minute. The second function is that of importance. So at the moment, anyone in the world can develop an app and put it on an app store and select global release as their sort of jurisdiction in which they're selling their app. Now, for medical devices, you can't do that. You can't make a medical device, medical device in Japan and then put it on a global market. It doesn't happen. You have to go through market authorization in pretty much every single country around the world, or you can get a C mark, which gives you access to 27, 28 European countries. So the app stores are also importers of medical devices, these apps, from countries outside of the EU. So let's say you make an app in America and you put it on the app store and you click global release and someone in Europe downloads that. That means that the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store have imported that app and distributed it. So that also comes with some regulatory and legal compliance. So those are the first two things. Then there are also other laws. So there's new laws around um, competition in, in the EU, which not essentially trying to prevent big monopolistic companies from owning total market share and dominating markets and giving fair access and fair play to smaller businesses. So there's a conflict here in that both Google and Apple are very widely and publicly in the health space. They've all got research projects and certain apps that they've, they themselves have developed. So we're just highlighting in our paper that there is a potential for conflict of interest here is that while these app stores now have the legal, moral and ethical duty to monitor some regulatory compliance for other people's apps, they also cannot publicize, sell, promote their apps above and beyond those that are also on the app store. So there's a conflict there. Uh, for instance, Apple can just force every single iPhone user in the world to have their new health app on their phone, which would obviously be unfair in competition to all the other apps that have a similar functionality in their app store. And I'm not saying that, you know, this is going to be a legal problem, but my understanding is that those app developers could then potentially sue Apple or Google for unfair business practices. So there's that kind of aspect to it as well. We're not saying, you know, naughty, naughty Apple and Google. We're just saying, look, there are these laws. They're not being complied with fully. Let's start that conversation about how this can be resolved so that two things, all users around the world can only download apps that are appropriately regulatory approved. And there's no issues on this sort of anti-competitive nature that is a theoretical possibility. It's incredibly important, isn't it? And something that I don't think people will necessarily think about because of how people assess authority in their mind, they might just take for granted that once something reaches the app store, the app store having the level of authority that it just has in their mind, they are likely, quite highly likely, to come to a conclusion that, hey, if it's on the app store, then it's good for whatever it says. I think what it's interesting, the language that you've used there, and, and terminology that you've been very clear that they are distributors and importers. So clearly that is the language that then flicks this into, hey, when you're doing those things and you are now labeled as doing those things, it comes along with a level of responsibility. And 
yeah, it sounds like that what you're trying to do in this paper is, yeah, put the ball in, in, in some other people's courts now as to like, look, I'm aware this has happened. Here it is. Here, I'm an expert in the space. We've, we are experts in the space. We've written this paper. And so what are we going to do about it? And I think the other reason I think this is important as well is I think the whole of health tech is relying on the governance of these types of things to ensure that nothing horrendous happens and public confidence in health tech apps drops because that is a real risk a real risk where the worst happens and then really bad sanctions are made that affect the whole of health tech and push the development back and then investor confidence goes down and then all of a sudden you're in real trouble in in the sector and so yeah incredibly incredibly important to highlight i think Absolutely. I, I think this is almost fundamental to the entire ecosystem of health tech. And as you said, it's a huge responsibility. In fact, the, the lead author of, of the paper, or the last author, I should say, the boss of the paper, uh, <laughs> Professor Stephen Gilbert, um, he's, he, he says, with great power comes great responsibility. Obviously, it's a quote from the Marvel movies, but um, it's true. These two app stores, they dominate well over 90% of, of the app market. They control absolutely everything in terms of access to these apps. So, of course, they should be responsible for the quality of these. And if those apps meet the definition of a medical device, they must be ensuring that these things are complying with the relevant legislations. Um, they also, you know, under these laws, have to um, make sure that these are clearly labelled. And there's, there's a new international standard coming out on how we should be labelling health apps. Um, they should be clearly labelled with a CE mark if they are a CE mark device. And they should be reporting adverse events and monitoring for serious adverse events. And those are, in, in medicine, these, these are things when a patient comes to harm, injury or death. Obviously, people are unlikely to die by using an app, but there's, there's definitely potential for all sorts of harm um, from digital health technologies. And that's the whole point of the CE marking process and the medical device regulations is to provide safe and effective apps to people. And you don't know that they're safe and effective until they've been externally audited, validated, and verified. Um, and the app stores have a duty to be part of that framework. And I'm not saying, or we're not saying in the paper, every single health app on the, in the app library needs to, be, needs to go through this rigorous process. There are certainly thousands of apps out there which count under sort of lifestyle and wellness, which are not classified as medical devices. Things like Strava for tracking your, your jogging and things. Obviously, jogging is good for your health. No one's denying that. But it's not claiming to treat, prevent, mitigate, provide therapy to a specific disease or condition. It's just good for your overall well-being and health. The apps that are medical devices are the ones that actually have a medical purpose as defined by law. And that could be benefiting an individual patient for a named individual condition. So there's a lot of apps out there, you know, asthma apps, sleep apnea apps, digital health, um, CBT. These are all medical devices because they are claiming they can improve, manage, monitor, treat, whatever, a single condition for, it, for the benefit of a single patient. And they need to be CE marked. Mm. And I feel like a broken record. You know me, I've been shouting this for ages. I argue with people on Twitter all the time about this. <laughs> Say, what are you getting so upset about? 
I'm not upset about it. I'm just pointing out this is the law. And you can't argue with me. It's the law. Um, and I'm just trying to promote, you know, reasonable best practice. You're probably a prefect at school, weren't you, Hugh? I was head boy. Yeah, head boy. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, enforcing the law. I can, I can, I can see it now. Uh, Holly, you've read this paper. Any thoughts, any questions for Hugh? Yeah, definitely. Um, again, many congratulations on the paper, Hugh. Um, I definitely learned a lot from it, re- reading through it many times. I think one thing that jumped out to me, um, and I've seen this kind of spoken about before, but Hugh, you mentioned in there a 2020 assessment of paediatric drug calculator apps um, that were you know, classified as medical devices. Um, this study did a review of them to kind of monitor their, you know, were they compliant with kind of the, the regulations that they should be? And I think it looked at kind of 70 odd apps and they found that actually only 1.4% of those apps met the required, you know, had the required regulatory approval um, that they were supposed to. And obviously, you know, all of these are available, we assume on Apple and, and Google app stores. And I know Hugh and a lot in a lot in your paper, you talk about kind of this wild west kind of of the health app market and, you know, this fine line between wellness and medical device kind of regulation um but it was more kind of a question for you i had on this so obviously for people listening many of them are going to be users of of health apps like this um and we know regulations complex maybe we won't see these changes um within the app stores kind of imminently but do you think there's something that users can be doing to kind of things they should be aware of when they're downloading apps you know is there something that they should be looking for to guess not kind of protect themselves, but maybe be more aware of this. Because I guess for us, like, you know, we hear about it a lot. Maybe, you know, we're slightly more aware of these things kind of from the people that aren't. You know, is there something that they could be doing? Yes. Uh, the number one thing is look for the CE mark. You you see a CE mark every single day. Pick up your any object near you right now. And if it, if it is distributed in Europe and imported to Europe, it will have a CE mark. Your iPhone has a CE mark. If you go to the regulatory page in your general... Um, sec- section in the settings. Look for a C mark. That's that's number one. It, it's it's the Chi mark for quality for almost every single product that's sold in Europe. If it doesn't have a C mark, it means that no one has checked whether this thing does what it says it does. Um, and, and I see people trying to bypass this this process all the time. The the, the alternative is that you know it just says made in China, and that, that you know I'm not pointing fingers at, at, at China, lots of great things are made there. But we all in the West, kind of when something's made in China, it, it, it doesn't feel maybe that it's perhaps of, of the best quality. And when it comes to your health, and especially mental health, which is where the majority of digital health apps really have a deep and profound effect, I think it's super important that, that there's more public awareness on this. The second thing I think I'd like to say is that um, the general public um, will never be aware of medical device regulations, nor, nor should they be. They should just be able to go on the app store and just trust that the apps that they downloaded are good. Obviously, some of them get one-star ratings, some get five-star ratings. But what I would like to see is some kind of digital pharmacy within the app stores. So this is just like we have for, for, for drugs that you take by mouth. When you go into a pharmacy, some are on the shelf, which you can pick up and buy, but some are behind the counter, prescription only. And of those, some are controlled, so even certain doctors can't prescribe them because they're very dangerous. So we should have a similar kind of 
tiered system for apps. Lifestyle wellness apps, fine. Everyone could just get them off the shelf, do whatever they want. You know, they're, they aren't, they're low risk. They're not regulated. That's fine. Apps that are medical devices but are low risk, yeah, perhaps you can just download it from the app store. But it's in a clearly designated part that this meets all of the criteria required by the C-marking process. And then you might even have a prescribable part of the app store. So this is the bit that only healthcare professionals can actually um, prescribe to you. So maybe you can download the app, but it's bricked unless you get an NHS prescription passcode or something like that. So there are ways and means by, the, by which this can be done. The question is, is it in Apple and Google's financial interest to develop this framework and police this? Um, can they make money from it? Um, and that's not something we touched on in the paper, but it, it comes to the bottom of everything that's happening in the health tech sector. Everyone's trying to make money by putting an app in the App Store. But... To make that money, you actually had to provide a useful service to, to patients. And the only way you know it's a useful service is if it's been regulatory approved and gets good reviews. So just on that, I, I wonder if the question is actually, do they lose money if they don't? And I think that, because it is resource, isn't it? It is resource that's required. And I think what you've written here is the start of what I think can be the power of media to put pressure to enact change. If you can define journalism as the search for truth and media more broadly to then broadcast that truth to have an effect on the way that we do things, we see it a lot with language, we see it a lot with um, just as, as societal consciousness shifts anyway like you see the power of media in that and i think what you've done here is i think one of the first steps along that to increase that information in terms of whether they think it's in their interests financially as i say i think there's evidence that certainly google are willing to because of what youtube have done because youtube have created the health shelf they've created a shelf of videos that are completely and utterly uh, like certified or validated with, you know, NHS accounts being able to be on there and they're trying to validate other people and they're working with the, you know, Academy of Medical Royal Colleges and other people to do it. So clearly they see the responsibility of, of information being distributed that way. You know, it's not too dissimilar as a concept, is it, really, that you've got this platform that people can put whatever they want on it and it causes people to change their behavior with regard to their health. Like, it's pretty similar. It's just the difference is a video versus an app. So actually, there's precedent there. And that's encouraging. It is, it, it is similar. It is similar. But I think it's, it's, it's more important or more potentially risky for the apps. Like, yeah, as Holly's example showed, this, these were calculators to calculate the dose of a drug you can give to a, an infant. Which we've both done, right? Which we've both done. Exactly. So, do you know, doctor, I can tell you, when you prescribe drugs for a baby, you do those calculations twice. My God, not you only do twice, them three man. Times. You check because <laughs> yeah. pediatric medicine, you, you do, not, do not want to get it wrong. So, for me, the mind boggles that people think that they can just put a calculator up on the app store and say, yeah, you can use this. And as the research shows, one point 
Oh, it's one out of 70, isn't it? If they looked at 70 and it's in the 1% range, it's one out of 70 probably. <laughs> and can you imagine the harm? Can you imagine the harm? And obviously these people are not malicious or evil. They're, no, no, they're, of course. They, they, they are naively thinking we're doing good by putting this on the app store. People are going to use it. But the risk is that if their calculator is wrong because they got something wrong and someone uses that, trusting that app, a child could come to harm. Worst case, die. And that is what the regulations are there to prevent. And anyone, I argue a lot, a lot of people on Twitter are saying, oh, but you know, you're stifling innovation, you're, you're stopping technology. And I'm just saying, no, I am just trying to save lives and stop harm. And, and the, these laws are in place for that very reason. I'm not a tech exceptionist. I do not go, oh, there's something shiny. This must be the future. I go, oh, there's something shiny. How do I make sure it's safe and effective and let's deploy it properly? And there's a lot of people that pay you to do that for them. So like, clearly it's valuable. <laughs> there's a business model to it. There is a business model, but you know, I'm not like, I'm not um, sort of sitting here counting, counting my, my money, thinking, <laughs> oh yeah, I've, I've conquered a market. What, what I'm doing is waking up every day and going to bed every night going, I am ensuring that patients get the best quality technology yeah. through the rigorous process of both technical and clinical validation. Some people scoff at the CE mark. And let me tell you, it can take up to 10,000 pages of documentation. You have to do a clinical trial, a clinical study. You have to have risk mitigations in place for every conceivable risk. You have to be audited in a five-day-long audit by external auditors. You cannot tell me that this process doesn't ensure safety and efficacy. Obviously, you are passionate about it. It's a, it's a good thing that you're passionate about it. Because as you say, it's incredibly important. When you, when you look at the, so the paper that you've written and, and the, the effect that you want to have, I've talked about one potential thing that I'd like to see now, which is perhaps media picking this up and running with this a little bit and this becoming part of a broader cultural conversation within health tech. I think that would be a good outcome. Was there anything you had in mind writing this of like, you know, balls in their court? Is there anything you want them to do? Is, what's the action that you're looking for out of this? I think what we as a group of authors, not just me, would like to see is those big tech companies own up to their responsibilities and take it seriously and engage with the regulators. The regulators are the good guys. They are very happy to talk to people about how they can become compliant. Some people think of them as the bad guys. They are not the bad guys. They're like the police. They are only the bad guys if you're a criminal. So just don't break the law. Comply with the law. Ask the regulators how you can do it. Um, I know that you know Apple and Google both have big regulatory departments internally. Google hired the ex-head of the FDA, the American regulators. So I know that they've, they've got the capability to do this in-house. Um, it's just a question of, Will they actually accept it? There, there is no ult ultimatum, I guess, and I'm only guessing the EU Commission who produces these laws could potentially sue Apple or Google if they're, if they're non-compliant. But to get to that stage, they've at least got to have the conversation about how to become compliant. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and, and that's just, that is just an interesting point as well. I, th I think people love to press the red button straight away and they'll find a sentence in a in a policy document or a rule or a reg or a law or something and then and then then there's just the outrage culture that we're in at the minute of people just suddenly become outraged at this thing and they want to sit and they want blood they want their pound of flesh and i think what's 
nice about this is that you've raised it and asked to start a conversation rather than, as you said at the start, just saying naughty Apple, naughty Google, and then, you know, trying to call for your pound of flesh. Like it, it's far more sensible uh, to, if you've found something, to raise it and ask for a sensible uh conversation a you know let's move forward together sensibly will help we're all in the same ecosystem after all you know it's a, it, it's it's a nice approach it requires both sides to play in that manner so we will see on to story number two this week so story number two this week comes to us from health tech world and they are talking about smart hospitals they're saying that they're the key to unlocking the next era of health tech we've been talking about uh smart hospitals virtual wards for quite a while jess you've read this any thoughts from reading this latest article yeah so you're absolutely right i think ultimately that there's not a great deal that's new here i think what they're talking about is I guess like we know that technology and data is becoming increasingly important to every aspect of our lives. Healthcare hospitals are not exempt from that. And I think, as I say, with some of the newer breakthroughs that we've seen, I guess it's adjusting that vision to see where they could fit, should fit. Um, and so basically what they are saying is that we now come, we've, we've had a vision for a long time about what these smart hospitals could look like. But now we're actually getting closer to seeing that being put into practice. Um, so they talk here about new age tech for a new age experience and the importance of data and how, you know, for a long time, everything's been stored on, like lots of information has been stored on paper. Um, but now most of that has actually been digitized. And so we've seen that transition. So now what is it that we're doing with that data? How are we using analytics? How is that being applied? How is AI being used? The one for you, Hugh, says here, while traditional hospitals use analog radiology tools, smart hospitals have raced ahead using digital CT, MRI scanners and software such as the PAX medical imaging storage systems. I mean, that's slightly outdated. Isn't it? <laughs> PAX, PAX has been around for 20 years. I mean, um, yeah, I, I did think that. I did think that. I don't know any hospital still using analog radiology for analog ct scanner England, do you anyway. like wind the thing up or something like what do you <laughs> <laughs> i think i think in in fairness in fairness I, I that that line has been taken out of context and i've only said it because of the word radiology in it but what they're ultimately yeah. saying is that now we're transitioning to a place where they're asking the question what is being done with that information that's being stored what insights are being pulled from that how are we applying ai algorithms to find efficiencies and make healthcare more accurate, all of that kind of thing. Um, and so it talks a lot about optimizing operations, which we know is not just part of our like technical evolution, but also imperative to the situation which we find ourselves in globally in healthcare, where there's not enough people, there's way too much demand, and there's a gap and so we're struggling to find people to plug that gap and so we have to find efficiencies and a big part of that is in optimizing operations oh here we go one step better for you Hugh revolutionizing radiology yeah it, it talks a lot here about the promise that AI holds and I think uh, it probably brings me to something relatively interesting that not relatively interesting very interesting that I've seen on LinkedIn recently where 
a company posted uh, a statistic that showed that basically people talk a lot about the fact that uh, AI is going to take over radiology. And here I'm going to come to you because you're going to have a point of view on this. But AI is going to take over the roles of people in radiology. Um, but actually, uh, a study showed that the AI wasn't as accurate as a human radiologist in identifying different things. The, this post sparked a really big debate um, amongst several different radiologists and digital health experts about what actually is the role of AI in radiology. I guess radiology is an example, but actually it has wider application, of course, in other specialties too. Uh, I think the conclusion was that ultimately, particularly now, AI is not going to take people's jobs and there aren't jobs for it to take anyway, but actually it's it's as an enabler and to support radiologists in the work that they're doing rather than to replace um, or be a like for like for a human where perhaps there are gaps. And I guess it does come back to this operational efficiency, like how can these technologies help people to do their jobs better? But yeah, as I say, Hugh, you will probably have a view on what revolutionising radiology safely in a smart hospital might mean. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating space. And this is where I sort of started out um, in the whole health tech business um radiology and ai has has been you know been talked about for decades only since 2014 2015 when sort of deep learning was became the thing du jour that people started going oh radiologists might be out of a job soon but it's been conclusively proven that not a single radiologist has lost their job to ai yet in, in the eight years since this technology was invented i'm not saying they, they never will um but what i think is that the, the vast majority of people really who are not radiologists outside of our practice. Remember, I was a consultant radiologist, so I can speak from experience. But the vast majority of people don't know what radiologists do. They think we sit in a dark room all day looking at scans, um, which isn't necessarily 100% true. I think out of a typical week, I might have spent maximum three of those days reading scans. The rest is doing a lot of the operational work, the admin, the teaching, the training, and doing physical procedures. Radiologists are very good at sticking tubes and wires inside the body because we've got imaging devices to help us make sure we get them in the right place. So there's a lot of physical stuff that happens as well. So yes, we might be able to uh, improve efficiencies on the diagnostic part of, of our work. But AI is just an adjunctive tool to the radiologists. And there's a lot of papers going, oh, we'll compare AI to radiologists. All of these AIs can do is do very narrow classification of something. So they can go, is there X, Y, or Z? And which bucket do I put this image into? But that's not how the diagnostic process works. The radiologists, yes, they do classify things internally in their head, but then they use logic and reasoning to come to an actual conclusion and make recommendations, which AI cannot do yet. It doesn't have that symbolic reasoning yet. Um, I'm not saying we'll never get there. It's another step towards artificial general intelligence, if you believe in that concept. But we're not there yet. But what we've invented is very efficient, fast turnaround classifiers, which can help weed through past piles of data. But you still need a human in the loop to put it into the context and make these logical decisions. So I'm very, very bullish on radiology AI. I think it's got huge potential for growth. I just think that articles like this, which kind of say, oh yeah, we're going to completely revolutionize. Revolutions take time in medicine. You know, give, it, give it 10, 20 years, yes, and then potentially going to completely revolutionize it. So I'm excited. I am cautiously excited. Um, I think it's got masses of potential, but let's do the hard stuff. Let's measure, 
research, get the evidence that this works. Because, you know, if someone came into your job and said, look, an AI is going to replace you tomorrow, you'd be naturally skeptical. You'd say, where's the evidence? So do, do the radio this a favor, let them ask for the evidence that they rightly deserve. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it actually applies to so many of the innovations, technologies that we see coming into care settings where, you know, there is this narrative that robots will take over our jobs, computers will take over our jobs. It's, that's just that's just not the case. And ultimately, part of one of the most important parts of healthcare is that human touch. And actually, you can't just remove that and and replace it with a machine that that as the reality as I see it of the future that I, I just don't see that, you know, happening. Um, there are some other really interesting things I think that it's pulled out. So it talks about smarter surgery and I think we've heard about, you know, robotics being involved in, in surgery for a long time now. Um, I was reading an article the other day about use of 3D uh, images. So basically turning scans into 3D images um, to help surgeons plan for surgery so they have a this kind of 3d view that they can interact with and they can do that remotely so surgical teams don't necessarily need to all be in the same place to plan for a surgery and i guess having almost like a being able to touch and interact with that um in a closer way i suppose to an actual surgery versus looking at a scan itself um but but the question it raised was you know i guess is that a stepping stone then to the metaverse and having surgeons holding their MDTs in the metaverse where they then have these mixed reality experiences to plan for surgeries. And, you know, we've also seen increasingly and while still rare, but, you know, more of them surgeons actually doing surgery remotely as well. Um, So I think that's particularly interesting, but also we talk a lot about virtual wards and taking care outside of the home and clearly technology is, going to be a big enabler of that and you know even earlier we were talking about apps and how you know that is people receiving healthcare from home by downloading an app um in in many different ways as well as interacting with with healthcare professionals so i think there's nothing in here that was really surprising and that feels like it's not really been thought of but i think you know it's, it's an interesting discussion and it is you know intriguing to see how as we see these new technologies coming through where realistically they can fit into the care systems that we use every day um, and what those care systems, how they might evolve with the technology. Always good to hear, you know, a personal experience, professional experience, I guess, from from someone who's kind of been there, done it, seen it, felt it, um, and cares very deeply about safe technology, so. I, I agree, Jess, all of this has a huge promise um, we can't forget where we are at a point in time um, where we are in a tech boom. Some people call it a tech bubble. I, I'm not convinced it's entirely a huge bubble. It's, it's certainly been overexpanded by the pandemic, but it's, and it's deflating slightly. But I still think tech is, is, is the future um, in medicine. And just a plethora of potential applications is absolutely mind-blowing. And as you say, our job really is just to make sure whatever comes to market is safe and does what it says on the tin and actually improves patient outcomes because if it doesn't do that it's not going to hang around for very long all right thanks you uh on to our final story today 
So our final story today, Spotify founder Daniel Ek has officially launched his new startup and this time he's taking on healthcare. We saw a story not long ago that he it was sort of in secret and someone had found some documents and pieced a few different things together. Anyway, seems like this has now come to light and Sifted, uh, so Mimi Billing at Sifted has written this article about Neko Health. So um, yeah, Daniel Eck looking to shake up healthcare with full body scans. Hugh, you've had a read of this. What are your thoughts? So first of all, when he's saying full body scans, it's not they're not saying this is in the internal scanning. This is external 3D body scanning. I, from what I understand, from the limited available materials on their website, is you stand in your underwear in some kind of external scanner, and it's it's taking photos or videoing your you. They're making quite a few claims on there, which I've not seen any evidence for. <laughs> they can look at every single skin imperfection, trying to find moles and skin cancers. They can measure cardiovascular well-being, fitness. I can't remember the exact terminology they use, just by looking at your pulsations in your skin. So, yes, potentially we, we, this could be useful in, in some situations. Look, I, I'm, I'm not completely sold on it, so let's be honest. It seems to be every year for the past 10 years, people have said, right, we'll get to have a full body scanning solution because that's what everybody needs to do. But the reality is, is that the vast majority of us are completely fine and we don't need to be scanned every year to look for everything. Um, so I'll be interested to see how this goes. Um, I gather they also combine this with clinical blood tests, uh, but the information is, is limited. So call me a healthy skeptic. And the only thing I'd say, echoing what we've said before, is show, show me the evidence. Um, apparently, this is based on four years of research. I couldn't find any research on it published anyway. So let's, let's have a look and see. Yeah. For a €150 patient fee, these examinations will collect over 50 million data points about the skin, the heart, the vessels, respiration, inflammation, and more. Neko's technology is based on AI, and therefore the company expects its diagnostic ability to improve over time. It's an interesting one, this. Diagnostic of what? Well, I knew that word would trigger you. What diseases are they claiming? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, what it, are they diagnosing? Well, quite, quite. It remains to be seen. And you and I both know uh, because we worked in a system uh, that was a public system, and therefore because we weren't fee-for-service, we weren't incentivized to test for everything. We weren't incentivized to oh, just MRI, just CT, now do an ultrasound, now do this, now do that, now do the other. We weren't incentivized to do that because we learnt that with a fixed resource you should try and make that resource spread as far as possible to as many patients as possible to make the most amount of impact possible. And therefore, in the NHS where you train, you are taught to really scrutinize the investigation that you're about to do and make sure that the investigation that you're about to do is worth it. And I've even seen hospitals that when you order blood tests, they actually put the cost of the blood test on the on what you've clicked because you can choose how much stuff you're going to test for every time you test and most people test for a lot of things but they even found that by actually 
putting the cost on there, they could actually drop the amount that doctors were testing for because they felt this, and it's not a cost out of their pocket, but it's a cost out of the public purse. And actually because of the, um, uh, I guess the morality of those doctors that they, um, and, and in fact, any clinician ordering those tests, they actually dropped the amount. Anyway, the reason I raised this is because when you move to fee-for-service and then you move it to the individual that's paying, I think it enters slightly dangerous territory because the individual for many different reasons might be incentivized to just keep testing. And again, you and I, Hugh, will know that if you look for something enough or if you if you look somewhere you enough, you will find something. Yes, exactly. If you look for something enough, you'll find it. So I mean this used to this used to be my job, James. I used to I used to look at you know <laughs> the inside of people's bodies day in, day out. And there's, you know, everybody has something inside them that shouldn't be there. Mm. It does not mean it needs to treat, needs, needs to be treated. Sometimes it does, of course. But there's a concept called screening. And we use it for very specific diseases where screening the entire population makes sense because of the prevalence and the morbidity of that disease. So things like breast cancer in women. Um, uh, it, it, these are national screening programs, not just in the UK, but around the world. We don't screen routinely for skin cancers because it's not as prevalent. Um, and typically, people present at a very late stage. It's very hard to catch skin cancers early because it's an aggressive disease. For cardiovascular health, what I would like to see from NECO, if that's going to be the final name of, of, of their business, is how does taking these 50 million data points of the human body actually improve our knowledge and understanding of the cardiovascular health of that patient over and above measuring someone's blood pressure or taking an ECG? What, 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 why are we doing this, is, is, is my question. Um, I am a scientist. If they can show, actually, we are going to catch cardiovascular diseases earlier, we are going to reduce long-term chances of stroke by catching an earlier absolutely i will i will agree but show me the evidence i feel like jerry Maguire. show me show me the evidence <laughs> and then you can have have me on board the, the, the second thing is and here i'll put my regulatory boring hat on this, this is clearly a diagnostic medical device so they're going to need <laughs> um, regulatory approval for us as well they absolutely will you, you laugh but it's true no, they, they absolutely will it strikes me as um something for the worried well that's where they're going to make the money. And also something that could really, for those people, could really have an impact on health anxiety. Because you're right that the more you look for something, the more likely you are to find something. And I know for myself, I would, if I paid for this once, I'm going to keep paying for it and I'm going to keep going once I have. Because I'll be convinced that I need to do that and I'll be stressed. I'll be, it, it would make me anxious. And I don't think I'm the only person who would feel that way and I think yeah I don't know I, I I think it plays into you know some interesting territory that ultimately could capitalize on some people's vulnerability in terms of their anxiety about their health there's definitely that you can get addicted you can become addicted to screening yourself and it mm. does happen there's a name for that condition I can't well, I think it ties into like, like wearables and everything though we have all of this data available anyway and I think being able to go and scan yourself regularly is like the next level up for that and I think there is a line where it steps outside of being useful and beneficial 
And I yeah. think for lots of people, you're in danger of overstepping that mark. I'm also slightly uncomfortable with someone having a full body scan of me standing there naked. I, I, don't, I don't want to see that. I don't, I don't <laughs> yeah, when you said so you stand there and people take pictures of you in your underwear, it's a bit weird. I think, I think the machine does. And then obviously, you know, they, they have they have to sell this as a service, so they have to say it's AI-driven. I, I don't yeah. know what the AI is doing. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Holly, would you get a full body scan? Oh, gosh. I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, I think... I don't know. I think kind of thing that jumps out to me with this one is, you know, after someone's got the scan, kind of what's next? Um, just kind of building on what you said, Hugh, from if you look hard enough for something, you you know, you'll you'll find it. I remember when Apple brought out the, the ECG feature and the, you know, the April, atrial fibrillation um, alert on their Apple watches. Um, and we heard a lot about doctors saying they were inundated with people visiting them, like worried about something that that you know wasn't actually there. Um, and my kind of immediate thought, my immediate thought with this is, are we going to see that again? Yeah, that's <laughs> that's kind of what's jumping to mind. But. Absolutely, I think it overmedicalizes um, things. But on the Apple Watch atrial fib, my father has atrial fibrillation, and it catches him whenever he flips into atrial fib. So. He does find it useful, but he is a patient with the condition, and that's exactly what it's intended to be useful and is regulatory clear for. I, I think it, when we're talking about this full body scanning, um, you know, it, if you think, even if you do find a skin cancer, you're not going to follow it up with this full body scanning. You're going to go and see a dermatologist and, and have a proper proper medical scan, a CT scan, to see if there's metastasized anywhere. So I, I've seen these companies rise and fail, and people have set up you know, annual MRI full body scans as a service. And it, they just go nowhere because the truth of the matter is when you take your car for an MOT, they don't scan the entire thing. They look for specific things that can be measured. So I think, you know, taking yourself for an annual 3D body scan, what are you measuring and why is, is my question. But as I said before, I'm a scientist. If there's evidence to show that this actually improves patient outcomes, and I'm all for it. The key is the specificity. And it's a, it's a great point that, that you've both made, which is that ultimately, yes, these tests can be incredibly sensitive. And therefore, the challenge is in the specificity and finding out what's actionable and what's appropriately actionable. That's where the challenge is. And yeah, again, to your point, Hugh, if they can find the evidence base for that, that they found this way to make these tests not only incredibly sensitive, but also incredibly specific. Um, and it's funny, they actually use the car, the, the, the car um, example. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, but Hialmar and I founded Neko with the insight that large parts of today's system were designed over 50 years ago. Uh, isn't it strange that we inspect our cars every year, but we wait until our bodies fall apart before we do something about it, uh, said Daniel Eck in a statement. That ignores the reason for why we do our cars every year. We do it every year because a car is a violently dangerous object. <laughs> <laughs> if travelling at 70 miles an hour falls apart, kills multiple people. Um, that's why we do it. Um, it has moving parts and it has wear and tear. If, if a human you know, had, had an MOT every year, you would very rarely find anything. Mm that was significant that needed to, needed to change. It's a good point to interrogate that 
metaphor actually or that comparison because you're right what do you actually look for in the mot you're looking for things that might be dangerous to others if they were to go wrong obviously yourself in the car but also then others because you're preventing major accidents aren't you so it, it that that is a yes that that's a stretched comparison isn't it perhaps it's a, it's a nice one it makes a lot of sense to the reader but as you say they this might be incredibly sensitive incredibly specific 50 million data points they might not be reporting all of those they're just going to find what's useful that and holly you asked about what happens next they actually they've it says here they've actually set up a, a new health clinic in stockholm where the non-invent the non-invasive treatments will take about 15 minutes followed by a doctor's consultation so you go from here into a clinic where you can get a 15 minute consultation and a treatment by the sounds of things that's non-invasive. So, um, yeah, interesting, interesting. We will see how this develops. Um, interesting to see how they do it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Good luck to them. Indeed. He's got the capital to, to, to run it for a few years as a big research project, I suppose. Yeah. So. He knows where to find you if he needs some help with regulation here. Well, yeah, indeed. yeah. You can email me. Um, we'll get you regulatory approved. But you will need the evidence first. That's that's the caveat. We'll put, mm. we'll put Hugh's contact details in the information box below. Yeah, they're looking for volunteers, Hugh. What? <laughs> well, volunteers. I, 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 I ain't getting in that scanner. I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Those have been the stories for today, everybody. Hugh, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks for coming. Before we let you go... Hardy and Health, what are you up to? What are you looking for? Yeah, tell us how it's going and what's what's the plan? What's the plan for 2023? What year are we in 2023? Yeah, we're in 2023 now, aren't we? We made it out of 2022. <laughs> we seem to go on forever. Um, now, Hardy and is doing well. We're, ex we're always expanding. Um, we, we just grow as a consultancy organic and with market demands. And as health tech markets grown, so so have we. Uh, I've, I've got no plans for world domination. I just want to keep it simple and serve our clients, majority of which are startups or universities, spin outs with the best expert advice and get into market safely, effectively, and as quickly as possible. I, I use quickly in inverted commas because it is a slow process. Um, we will be holding another summit this year, so you can subscribe to our newsletter by our website to get early access details to that. It was completely sold out in two days last year, so hopefully that, that will be good. And then other than that, we might look at expanding an office out to the States. A lot of European companies are looking to the US. The FDA processes are slightly less rigorous than the EU processes, so people see the US market as desirable. So we're looking into exploring that. Very exciting. Um, and otherwise, just collaborating with, with the brilliant Somex of course. On, our, on projects. One more question before you go, though. Um, obviously, you see loads of tech, right? And you are in the business of not getting excited by it because at the end of the day, it's about the science. It's about making sure the evidence is there. It's about making sure it works. So you're not blinded by the tech itself, which I think gives you a relatively unique perspective on this. So in health tech, what are you excited by? I get excited by the stuff that works. So we've got, we've got several clients who um, have just got products which aren't these big, flashy, we're going to replace doctors, we're going to replace X, Y, and Z, we're going to revolutionize, we're going to disrupt. It's actually, we've figured out a nice, neat way, evidence-based, regulatory approved, that actually solves a problem and improves outcomes and is cost-effective. 
And so I'm not sure if I'm going to give examples direct on the podcast, but there's a few that are just absolutely smashing it in terms of sales because they go to the NHS and go, this is your problem. Here's our solution. It works. Here's the evidence. And they're cracking it. And they don't do all this big, flashy, hype, sifted EU um, press releases. They just go out, get the evidence, get the regulatory approvals, improve the health economic validity of it, and, and, they, and they start winning. So that's what I get excited about. Mm. Um, I, I, the shinier the tech, the more skeptical I am in, in general. Mm. Um, is 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 a fundamental kind of feeling, but that you know to say I don't get excited is not true. I think I get initially excited, and then the pragmatist in me goes, "Well, hang on, what are going to be the barriers to adoption here?" Mm. And I just try and think realistically about it. And this is why I have a slight reputation for being, you know, controversial. I think is the wrong word, but just I don't know, belligerently pointing out the hard truths, which sometimes riles people up. But, yeah, controversial. You know, I, yes, if I am wrong, absolutely I will word. always apologize. Yeah. 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 If I'm wrong, I will always apologize. And I'm a scientist, as I've said, I will happily be disproven. Mm. I would love to be disproven a lot of these, mm. lot of these things, but I can only go by what the evidence shows. Awesome. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. That has been another Health Tech Pigeon. Hugh, thanks so much for coming along. Um, if anybody wants to hear more from you, I can certainly recommend your Twitter. What is your handle? Dr. Hugh Harvey. At Dr. Hugh Harvey, all one word. Uh, we are going to put the link to Hugh's Twitter and probably his LinkedIn into the description of this episode. That has been me, Jess, Holly, and Hugh talking about the week's news. Thank you so much for joining us. We are going to come back to you next week with some more health tech newsy stuff. Thanks, everybody. Mm-hmm.